Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder. I mean, someone that has been on every side of the table, on the investment side, on the entrepreneurial side. And and I think we're going to learn a lot from, you know, how you look at patterns, how you look at, you know, like uh, problems, you know, solutions, opportunities, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Adam Jiwan. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alejandro. It's a real pleasure to be here today. So what a what an interesting story of your family, Adam. So originally from India, but then several generations in Africa. What what did your ancestors lose there in Africa? What was going on? Sure. So you know, my family was from you know Western uh, India, in Gujarat, and some parts of Northern India, and the majority of them were peanut farmers. And peanut farming then, in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, as in now, was not a good business, and so. I guess they heard there was evolving economic opportunity in Africa, and so they packed up and, and moved to East Africa. So they, you know, settled in countries like Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda, and uh, they became sort of merchants uh, of varying degrees of success. Uh, but they were there for several generations, as you mentioned, and it was, uh, I think, a, a very sort of um, important experience for for our family. Very cool. And obviously, your parents here meeting at a wedding. Uh, quite uh, remarkable, uh, and and you becoming a business guy, uh, an entrepreneur, when, where, where there's like no one in your family really that uh, that is really into business. So so how do you think that happened? Yeah, so it's a great question. You're right. Neither of my parents uh, was in business, and neither of them are commercially minded. Uh, but my extended family, so my mother's siblings and my mother's father and grandfather, were all incredibly enterprising entrepreneurs and those that are still with us, uh, are so highly entrepreneurial. And I think I grew up in a community where creating uh, businesses for yourself um, was something that uh, I was uh, very exposed to. And so I think that was very inspiring to me. And, and so from a very young age, I was very interested in entrepreneurship, even though my immediate parents were, were much more um, social uh, intellectuals, frankly. So, so Adam, I see as well, and you know, I know that that you have, you know, started your first business at 12 years old. You know, I, I, at that age, I think that I was, uh, you know, not allowed to go out that much out of my house, and I was, uh, you know, playing PlayStation. So, what, what the hell happened here? 
Yeah. So I started my first company. I registered it. It was called Ground Rule Double. And at the time, I was very interested in baseball and baseball cards. And I used to go to these baseball card shows where I'd go to you know Cooperstown and I would uh, basically enter into a wholesale retail type business where I'd buy large sets of um, baseball cards. Uh, and then I would sell them at either other shows, to other retailers, or frankly, even to friends at school. Uh, it wasn't some grand operation, but it was, certainly was my first parlay into understanding, you know, uh, some very basic principles of business. And you were you were also investing at thirteen. What were you investing in? I was investing in equities primarily. So I opened my first brokerage account, and you know, with some of the monies that I had saved from various odd jobs, I uh, started investing in various stocks of companies that I thought had, uh, you know, potential. I knew very little, frankly, about the fundamentals of businesses or valuation at the time, but uh, it was something very intriguing. And those were my first experiences learning how to uh, invest capital. That's amazing. So was there like a point here where you said, I, I want to go to Harvard? Yeah, you know, the Harvard thing was interesting. My parents met uh, at a wedding in Scarsdale, New York in the 1960s. And my father's younger brother uh, attended Harvard, and so my parents periodically would meet while they were dating uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I think they had this notion that if they ever had children, they hoped that uh, you know they would go to Harvard. And so, from a very young age, my first-generation immigrant parents, you know, sort of introduced and inculcated the notion of of going to Harvard. Uh, so it was always a dream of mine as well, and and so I was I was lucky enough to uh, to have a spot, and uh, it was a it was a transformational experience for me. And I'm sure that quite a valuable network as well, no? Absolutely, and also just being exposed to people who were doing so many interesting things in different fields. Um, I think that was uh, really eye opening for me in many ways. Yeah, you know, the other day I I, I listened to this. Um, someone said to me, you know, if if you're surrounded by four stupid people and you're the fifth one, you're probably going to be the fifth stupid people, the, the fifth stupid person. But if you're surrounded by four super smart individuals that are doing great things, you're probably going to be the fifth one, you know, doing something great too. Was that the case probably that you were surrounded by incredible people that perhaps inspired you with certain things? Yeah, I think, you know, you elevate your game exactly as you say. I think when you're around sort of, you know, really ambitious, bright people, even if they're doing vastly different things from what you're doing, right? It just creates this really uh, dynamic environment that, you know, um, inspires you to push beyond the normal bounds of what you'd expect is possible for yourself. And I'm sure that the investing at 13 and seeing the markets perform and so forth, that really got you into the idea of perhaps, you know, like getting into the financial services world. And you did that via Goldman Sachs. Correct. Yeah, I think my, my foray into finance and Wall Street uh, initially was driven less from a, a strict interest in investing per se. And it started because I had a lot of student debt, frankly. And so, you know, at the time, you know, kids with high GPAs uh, were going to Wall Street rather than technology as they do today. And so Goldman Sachs recruited me. I spent a summer there, had offers to go back. Uh, and wanting to repay all these student loans, frankly, that I had, um, you know, I decided to stay on Wall Street. And I then started learning about different businesses and different industries and business models. And, and I found that very intellectually sort of interesting. So it uh, turned out to be an uh, interesting and valuable and, and insightful experience. I guess a very nice segue to, get, to going into Blackstone. And you worked there with Steve Schwartzman, which actually recently came out with a very interesting book. So uh, so how was, how was the experience of being at Blackstone? 
Uh, you know, Blackstone uh, was a great experience in the sense that it exposed me to different types of businesses, different business models, uh, different industries. It exposed me to the investment process and, and developing sort of analytical discipline and rigor because, you know, we worked literally 100 hours a week uh, and everyone within that sort of group worked, you know, incredibly sort of hard. And so I think there was a discipline to it. There was uh, exposure to it. Um, but it was challenging too, right? Living your life, uh, you know, working 100 hours a week is is not uh, is not the easiest thing either. But uh, but it was, a, you know, I'm grateful for that experience. And and what was it like to work with with people of the caliber of Steve Schwartzman? Well, he's brilliant, and so I think whether it was Steve Schwartzman or Mark Logley, um, who went on to create sort of Centerbridge, you know, these uh, individuals were just extraordinary investors, uh, and not just investors, they were great business builders themselves, which is, I think, what made them quite unique, is that they weren't just investing in other people's companies, they were also building their own business of, you know, in this case, the, uh, you know, Blackstone. And, you know, it's very interesting as well, because not only you got to see, uh, you know, people like Steve Schwarzman, but then you went and worked for George Soros. So, so I guess... Obviously, George Soros, you know, like another one of the of the big, big um, uh, titans. You no, know, when it comes to to the investing world. So, I guess, what did you learn from, let's say, now that you were able to work with Steve Schwarzman or with people, you know, at the top level in in Blackstone, and then also with with someone like George Soros? What were some of the patterns that you were seeing? You know, like of what really made those individuals so great. Sure. So I think in the case of Steve Schwarzman, and some of the things I learned is that you know he had incredible chutzpah, right? He really um, didn't just accept the status quo. He really wanted to excel. And to excel, he decided that you had to work relentlessly. You had to hire the absolute very best people you could. You had to always uh, focus on you know the bottom line and specifically not losing capital, uh, which I think they have an exceptional track record of no, not losing or never losing capital, including through the crisis. And so, you know, I think uh, Steve was just you know that perfect example of like uh, persistence. In George Soros's case, you know, I did have an opportunity to work directly for him in a, on a number of things, and perhaps the most interesting thing I learned from him was when you find something extraordinary, you make a big bet, you do not hesitate, and uh, you know that was something that uh, didn't come naturally to me because you know I tended uh, and tend to be highly analytical. I can sometimes ping pong, you know, sort of things in my head, uh, and George was a great example of like when it's time to strike, you strike, you strike big. Got it, got it. And I guess uh, after you were doing it, you know, like a little bit with uh, with George Soros, and you know, before that with Blackstone, you decided to do TPG, which is obviously more on the on the growth side of things. But I'm sure that there you were able to really learn a lot on perhaps you know how to build teams or how to establish a team and and how you create the process around it. So so tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I uh, joined TPG Axon, which was a, a global multi-strategy hedge fund uh, within a year of its launch. And I think the most uh, interesting aspect of that uh, experience was that uh, within a year of joining the firm, I was asked to move to London to establish the European presence of the firm. I'd never lived in Europe. Uh, and so I was both the co-head of global recruiting for our company and uh, with uh, one other person was charged with building out a local presence in Europe. And later on, I did uh, something similar in, in co-running Asia as well and moving to Hong Kong. So I had this interesting experience of ha you know building and running investment teams uh, on the ground in not only New York, but also London and then eventually Hong Kong. And so uh, being exposed to new cultures, new people, 
being able to develop teams, uh, the number of countries I got to visit uh, when I was making prospective investments uh, was was pretty extraordinary. So I think that international uh, component of that experience over a period of nearly seven years was um, was really something that opened my eyes, not just from a business perspective, from a from a life perspective as well. And also, you were exposed to the hurdles of doing a little bit real something related to mortgage lending in Russia. What happened? Oh. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. So <laughs> prior to the financial crisis, um, I, I had the idea that, you know, Russia was an interesting market for mortgage finance because I had seen the evolution of mortgage finance in countries like India with companies like HDFC Corp. I'd seen what had happened in China. And in Russia, there was a very outdated housing stock. And there was a national agency called AJK that had been developed to acquire mortgages from mortgage originators, so like a mini Fannie Mae. And it struck me as a, as a real opportunity to build a business. And so with some local partners, we started a, a, a Russian mortgage bank called Rodina. Uh, and we thought there was tremendous potential. Um, unfortunately, this turned out to be uh, not the case. Um, and you know, this was one where you know, we had a real loss and, and we had to figure out what to do with it. Um, so there were some lessons, lessons in that. So, so this for you, TPG, was a, a remarkable experience, especially to really be able to see opportunities more at, a, at an earlier stage kind of thing, no? based on, on what you were seeing with, let's say, like Goldman Sachs or Blackstone. So here you were really exposed to, to perhaps like the operator side and, and so forth. So I guess uh, perhaps a good segue no? into doing your own thing. So, so at what point do you make the decision of saying, hey, you know, I'm going to go to the other side of the table? Sure. So, you know, in 2000, you know, following the crisis, um, you know, one of the things that I found, and this was sort of endemic to the entire hedge fund industry, I found that there was a short-termism that was creeping into investing. And one of the things that I thought I was not very good at was, you know, figuring out whether a stock was going to go up or down in a over a short period of time. I felt like I was much better at understanding the fundamentals of a business, of a business model, what the key drivers are, and thinking through what the path of profitability and value might be over a three, four, five-year period. And so um, I knew that I wanted to do something different. I always had this hunger to be an entrepreneur. I'd had some glimpses of those entrepreneurial experiences by establishing, you know, this presence of the firm in Europe, but that was on training wheels. And I had had the experience of backing other entrepreneurs in places like Russia and Brazil, et cetera. And so I felt like it was my time to really try to do something more autonomously. Um, and uh, so in February 2012, when my equity cliff vested, uh, I told my partners that uh, I was unhappy and I wanted to leave and I wasn't intending to compete with them and that I, uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I wasn't sure exactly what that meant, uh, but that was what I intended to do. So then what happened? So I threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall, uh, in truth. And so uh, I, you know, I looked at, uh, with a partner acquiring a, a commercial real estate software platform that was based in San Francisco, uh, was not able to acquire the company, some interesting lessons there. Uh, we tried to restructure a couple of companies. Uh, I got involved in seeding a company called Avant, uh, which is in Chicago alongside uh, its uh, chairman and CEO, Al Goldstein. I uh, then um, got involved in, 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 in buying uh, with some partners some businesses in Africa. There were some interesting lessons there. So we threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall. And so 
I'd say they fell into two buckets. It was uh, helping to start companies and then buying some companies and thinking that we might be able to restructure them or grow them or do something different from what had been done in the past with those businesses. And so uh, uh, there were a, a period of a two or three years where, you know, tried a lot of different things, some of which were actually successful, but uh, it was, uh, you know, sort of a little all over the place, I'd say. And I guess that one of the experiences there was obviously you, you started the investment vehicle, Rich Road Partners. Uh, and here, something happened in Africa. So, so what happened here and what was the lesson around having boots on the ground? Absolutely. So you know, we made two investments in Africa. So we bought co-control in one case of a guarding business. Think of like a G4S, but in Africa focused on the mining sector. And the reason we made that investment was, first, the valuation was incredibly low, uh, number one. Number two, we thought it was an interesting uh, opportunity to have a second derivative exposure to the development of the mining business across Africa. And we didn't want to be directly involved in the mining business because we think uh, that can be a very messy business. But, you know, guarding sort of either mines or executives uh, at from multinational companies, these are, you know, contracts that are going to get paid because you're you're you know, protecting effectively their most valued assets. And so uh, we made this investment. Um, you know, my partner, Michael, you know, two weeks after joining me on his own dime, flew to Point Noir, uh, which is the Republic of Congo, to start looking at the accounts here. Uh, I made a number of trips uh, to Africa, you know, as well. And, you know, one of the lessons here was that, you know, restructuring a company when you are sitting, you know, on the other side of the world, and this is in Africa, is incredibly difficult. You really need to have boots on the ground. Um, to demonstrate leadership and you know ensure that controls that you're putting in place are there. So ultimately, it was not a you know a, you know a, a, an amazing investment for us. We realized that we were not going to be able to invest the time or energy or be boots on the ground, and so we ended up selling our interest um, you know to our, our local partners, and we did make a little bit of a return, which was nice rather than losing any capital. Um, but certainly, uh, we realized that to, to operate in a place like that, you know, you really need to to be physically present. And there's something very interesting there that you said, and, and, and you alluded to demonstrating leadership. And, and you've seen a lot of businesses and a lot of operators. So, so how do you demonstrate leadership? So I think, you know, demonstrating leadership sort of fall, you know, uh, falls into, um, or involves several different things. I think the first, of course, is sort of being present, being willing to do, you know, the things that, you know, uh, you know, that anyone should be willing to do. I think, so it's about presence. It's about commitment. I think it's about, um, you know, having, you know, high integrity, making sure that you look out for your people, that you sort of protect them, you know, whether they're in your company or leaving your company. I think there's many aspects of sort of leadership, but it's really sort of walking the talk that, that tends to be sort of the most important. Um, and, uh, you know, really looking out for your people, I think is, is, is really important as well. Absolutely. So, so obviously here, the investment vehicle Rich Road Partners was a very nice segue into future finance. So, so tell us about future finance. Sure. So, you know, uh, coming out of the crisis, uh, you know, the European banking system was in, you know, disarray. And in 2011, uh, the UK government said that they were going to increase tuition for higher education, and, you know, which happened in 2012. And it was a very significant increase. And, uh, you know, my longtime friend, Vishal Garg, who is the CEO and founder of uh, Better uh, which you might be familiar with. He, my partner, Brian Norton in Ridge Road and I saw an opportunity um, based on a funding gap for students in the UK. 
we thought that um, different from the U.S., student finance actually could be productive for both students and for financiers. Uh, different from the U.S., uh, students in Europe were not graduating from college or university with you know vast amounts of debt, but there was a need for students to actually you know borrow, call it ten thousand or eight thousand or twelve thousand sterling in order to fund their education. Uh, where there was a real return on that investment for those students. And so with the banking system in disarray, we saw an opportunity to build a private student lending business. Uh, and that's uh, that's what the three of us did. And here you uh, were the uh, executive chairman. What What is really the role of an executive chairman? Sure. So I think uh, the role of an executive chairman is to um, help the company resource itself, uh, help think through sort of, you know, the commercialization of a business model, uh, setting strategy, uh, raising capital, uh, hiring senior management teams, and, you know, putting sort of policies and procedures in place from a governance perspective as well. And then finally, really sort of supporting, you know, the chief executive officer of the company in, you know, their, uh, in, in their leadership of the, of the day-to-day operations of the business. Got it. And for for you, the the next uh, chapter. I mean, it's 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 unbelievable the amount of, of chapters that that you have, Adam. I think that you've been you know like quite uh, quite active, uh, I would say. But your next chapter was assembly software, and assembly software. Uh, it was uh, something interesting there because basically it came via the acquisition of a business, which is not the traditional way of building and starting something you know from your garage or from your studio apartment. So so how did this happen? Sure. So, um, yeah, I guess it's the concept of uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition. Uh, through all of my experiences in investing, I always sort of considered myself to be a student of business models. And so I always loved being able to acquire uh, or build, you know, fundamentally strong business models. And, and the software business is, is a great, uh, you know, a great business model, especially, uh, you know, in industries where technology doesn't change very often because the switching costs tend to be high. And so, um, we saw an opportunity to buy one of the largest case management legal software companies that allow you know that allows um, uh, law firms to manage not only their cases but their entire practice, and so it tends to be very sticky and high margin and, and, and high recurring revenue streams. And there was an opportunity to buy this one brand with nearly ten thousand uh, users uh, for quite a reasonable price, and so we saw this as an opportunity to transition ownership from a founder who was. Uh, a terrific person, but someone who um, you know was probably using it more as a lifestyle vehicle at this point, rather than having an ambition of, of sort of scaling it well beyond uh, what it had been. And so uh, the price was right, the partner was right, and so we acquired this first brand. It was called TrialWorks. Um, two months later, we had an opportunity to buy its largest competitor called Needles. We acquired Needles. We combined the companies to build uh, uh, the largest actually cat case management um, software company in the U.S. with you know roughly forty five thousand users. Um, and, and there were a lot of lessons in in uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition, and especially about culture. And you you were talking about Needles, so so. So when it comes to needle, you know, like I think that you guys got pinched on on the culture <laughs> side. So, so what, what was the pinching situation? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we went into these acquisitions believing was that, you know, one company was better at technology development, but didn't have necessarily great customer service. And the other one had excellent customer service, but not necessarily great technology development. And we thought that we would be able to get the best out of both companies and, and you know, without a lot of uh, lot of uh, 
struggle. Um, of course, what we learned is that you know companies develop cultures over long periods of time. Sometimes things can sort of calcify, and sometimes you don't get the best of everything. Sometimes you get you know the worst of of of, of both, and that's not entirely true because there were some terrific and there still are some very terrific sort of people there. But certainly over a couple of year period. We had to work very hard to, you know, transition sort of cultures and and that involves some people leaving the company who didn't sort of believe in the future growth potential and or the culture we were trying to create. And we had to hire a lot of, you know, extremely talented people. And so at this point, very proud of the team we've been able to assemble there and, and the company is now undergoing, uh, you know, renewed significant sort of growth. Um, and, but it was, it was a challenge, you know, it was, a, it was a lot of heavy lifting because cultures are very difficult to change uh, midstream. And also legal tech is, uh, is quite a tough environment too. I mean, uh, this week alone, for example, the news of Atrium who has raised like something crazy, like 75 million bucks, they, they literally are shutting down. So obviously it's not an easy uh, segment. I, but I guess from, from your perspective, sitting at the top, Adam, where do you think, because you're still obviously involved now uh, with, with the company as, as the co-chairman, where do you think that legal tech is, is going as a whole, as an industry? So, you know, similar to sort of financial technology, I think there's a tremendous opportunity within sort of legal technology for a variety of reasons, which is, you know, if I look at, you know, assembly software, as I mentioned, we have 45,000 users, roughly speaking, and and still growing quite nicely. And, you know, uh, I think something like, you know, nearly 20% of our users are still using WordPerfect, which is a, a software program that you know, many people listening to this show, you know, probably have never even seen. So it's quite antiquated. Uh, in terms of their adoption of technology, and therefore we see tremendous scope to introduce technologies that will make uh, law practice uh, that much more efficient uh, going forward. So uh, I, I actually am very bullish on legal technology in terms of where the total addressable market is going over the next you know five or ten years. Very cool, uh, and this led you into your latest uh, chapter, and this is Spring Lab. So. So can you tell us about Spring Labs and, and more importantly, how did you come up like with what, what was the, the, the idea behind it? Like what was the incubation process like? How did you guys bring it to life? Tell us about it. Absolutely. So Spring Labs, um, our mission is to fundamentally change how data is owned, exchanged and monetized. And our initial and primary focus is on financial services. And the reason for that is that we believe that the current system of credit reporting, identity verification and fraud management is very outdated. And so we're trying to introduce fundamentally new infrastructure to the financial services industry to really sort of bolster credit reporting, identity verification, and help drive down fraud uh, in a world where it really seems like we're in this contest between innovation on the one side and fraudsters and hackers on the other. And so um, that's why we're hoping to change how, uh, how data is managed effectively within the financial services industry. So how did the band come together, the founding team? Sure. So the band came together quite seamlessly because we'd all worked together for uh, a number of years in a company called Avant. Uh, I had uh, seeded Avant alongside with uh, its chairman and CEO, Al Goldstein. Uh, and uh, Al's co-founder was John Sun. Uh, and the first hire was Anna Friedman. Anna was the general counsel and built a 60-person compliance organization at Avant. And so over a period of 
you know, a number of years, uh, John, Anna, and I, who are the co-founders of Spring Labs, got to work together, got to know one another, established trust. Um, and what was interesting about that is that we all have very complementary skills. You know, John is a complete, you know, product development uh, genius. He's incredibly facile with technology. He really understands risk and data. And Anna uh, really understands, you know, regulatory uh, regulatory matters and compliance, which is really important when you're trying to drive adoption with highly regulated, compliance-minded institutions. Um, and you know, I've had the experience of how to, you know, put together sort of teams and resource companies and develop partnerships with, you know, potential customers like financial institutions. And so we had this great complementarity of skills. We had a foundation of trust. We had a foundation of having success together. And so when this idea that, in fact, we might be able to build a business that would be quite transformative for the financial services industry came along, you know, it was a very quick decision to jump on it and spend the vast majority of my time trying to execute upon it. Got it. And obviously, this was probably, this led you to the first time you were booted off a stage. So what happened there? <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, uh, you know, there are scenarios in which, you know, our business will be disruptive to uh, the credit bureau system, but there are many ways in which we could be complementary to it as well, frankly. Uh, and so, you know, we had um, had received a lot of interest from the established credit bureaus, and one of them in particular, with whom we have a strong relationship, uh, invited me to speak to their largest bank customers. And of course, I wanted to be very mindful that uh, I was invited by this credit bureau to speak to their large customers, and I wasn't going to say anything that would make it seem that we were competitors or anything along those lines. Again, I wanted to be a good guest. Um, so I gave my presentation, uh, which was really about how technology could be used to change how information is exchanged. Uh, it was sort of quite neutral. Then a lot of the bank representatives, um, who were the other guests, started posing questions. And it became very clear that our business, if successful, could be very disruptive to the established credit bureau system. And that there were a number of virtues in what it was we were trying to do that really resonated with their bank customers. Um, and I think once uh, it emerged during this Q&A session that uh, we could be competitors, uh, again, even though it wasn't my intent to say that, um, I was basically booted at booted uh, off of uh, off uh, off of the stage <laughs> and how, how did they do that did someone just come in and say hey please you gotta get out of here or what? well I, I thought we had another 20 minutes for q a and they said listen you know we're really out of time we really appreciate you sort of coming here and uh, that was it and so i was asked <laughs> to you know exit door left <laughs> that's amazing and and for for spring labs you guys have raised quite a bit of money how much money have you guys raised so far sure so we've completed a series a last year and, and the total capital raised is uh 38.75 million Got it. And obviously, at this point, you know, you're very experienced when it comes to investments, when it comes to investors. So why did you go ahead and choose people like August Capital? So, so great question. So um, August Capital was the first investor in Avant. So I had had a longstanding relationship with Eric Karlberg, who is one of the general partners there. Eric and I were on the board of Avant from inception. And so we had worked together in helping um, Al and the team sort of set strategy there for, for nearly seven years. And so we had a longstanding relationship. And so when the idea of you know, creating Spring Labs emerged, Eric said, listen, if you want capital, we want, to, we want to lead the round. And so when you have people you know, like, and trust and have had success with, uh, it's a it's a complete no brainer, and so uh, you know I think the vast majority of the capital that we had raised, um, 
you know, initially came from folks similar to Eric who had known, you know, uh, the founding team in some capacity or had backed us in some capacity, uh, you know, previously. Very cool. So I guess, uh, for example, like if you had to go, let's say, to sleep tonight and then you wake up, let's say, in, in five years from now and you wake up in a world where the vision of Spring Labs is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, Spring Labs' mission is to fundamentally change how data is owned, exchanged, and monetized. So in five years, we will replace the underlying infrastructure of the financial services world with a series of pipes that allows for much greater security, much greater consumer privacy than we all you know, have today, where we have much lower incidences of fraud and much higher levels of financial inclusion in the economy. Wow, very cool. Very cool. And I guess as you are now building the business, uh, I'm sure that you've probably like learned a few things on, on, on the companies that end up succeeding and the companies that perhaps don't perform so well. And I'm sure that that you know, has to do a lot with, with culture. So how, how, how do you think about culture and how are you building you know, the culture in Spring Labs? So it's a great question and you're absolutely right, which is, you know, if you want to be successful, you have to have an amazing team and to have an amazing team, you have to have an amazing culture because it all sort of, you know, ends up in this virtuous cycle of, you know, people want to work for a great company, but a great company comes from great people. And so, you know, the things that we try to focus on are, you know, recruiting people who are not only exceptionally talented by hard skill, but also, you know, great to work with. And, you know, I think that's been one of the lessons I've had in life, which is choose your partners really carefully. And so, you know, I like to do things with people I know, like, and trust. And so when you are able to do that, you just continue doing it with the same people, which is if you look across, you know, a lot of the types of businesses that we've spoken about, there are two or three people who are common to every single one of them. And so um, I like that idea within our employee basis as well, which is, you know, ideally, these are people we are going to do things with in Spring Labs for many, many years and, and potentially in other things over, over the course of life. And so we try to create a, you know, a culture of people who are not only hardworking with great skills and come from great places, um, but actually are just fun to work with and are fundamentally good people. And they like know how to listen and they know how to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, they believe in the mission. And so it's hard always to identify those people. But I think, uh, where that comes from is from the from the initial people, which could be the founders, but even just the initial people you hire beyond that. And I think that's been true in our case as well. I can think of two or three people who are part of our founding team who are technically not founders, who've been incredible culture carriers for uh, for our company. And so I'm really grateful that we were able to find some of them. So in terms of identifying, because obviously, you know, in in a company like yours, you got to grow very quickly. You need to hire quickly. And obviously, you know, like when you do it too quickly without really taking a look at certain things, like, for example, making sure that there are certain uh, areas that really match with the culture of the business, you know, like maybe, you know, you, you, you tend to make mistakes, you know, when you move too sure. fast in, in that department. So I guess in your guys' case, or for example, in your case, really leading the chart here when it comes to, let's say, onboarding folks, how do you really go about identifying these people? I mean, what are, what are some of the patterns or what are some of the questions that you're asking? So I don't think it's so much about questions. It usually is the source, right? So the, the best people that, that we have found usually come, you know, uh, you know, from word of mouth, right? And so they've worked somewhere with someone we know, or even if they come through a recruiter, we know uh, how to validate their sort of background through references of other people we know and, and trust. And so I think there's a, how they come to you is a very relevant uh, screening sort of tool. And then I think the next is, you know, making sure that you set, you know, very sort of clear sort of expectations and, and, and boundaries around, you know, what the role is and, and how someone's expected to, you know, 
succeed within their role. Uh, and then I think, you know, mentorship plays an important aspect of that. And then frankly, you know, as you say, sometimes you make mistakes. And when you make mistakes in this type of thing, especially when it's a senior hire, frankly, that's when, you know, you as a leader have to sort of accept that it's your fault for, you know, it not working out. You know, usually it's not the person you hired. Occasionally it is, but sometimes when you're hiring a senior person, um, you know, it doesn't work out. You have to sort of acknowledge that early, you know, and, and try to sort of get it on the right path. But sometimes you can't. And when you can't, you accept it and you have to move on and hopefully you can part ways, uh, you know, and on good terms. So in a, in a company like yours, obviously, what you guys are doing, you know, the technical integration with partners and, and launching new products, you know, that's that 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 is obviously challenging. So so how, how do you go about that? Sure. So, you know, you, you have to hire people who are highly experienced uh, at uh, enterprise, uh, not only sales, but also uh, who are, you know, very sort of conversant in, in how to uh, get large, highly regulated, compliance minded and slowing moving institutions to actually start adopting our technology. And so we've had to build customer uh, support teams. We've had to, you know, have a CISO. We've had to make sure that we have all of the things that, you know, large enterprises would expect of, of, uh, of a, you know, a real scale business, uh, meaning that, you know, we have all of the security in place. We have all of the redundancy in place. We have the ability to audit and monitor, um, you know, the technology that we, um, uh, you know, have the underlying uh, architecture for privacy that we understand the regulations. And so it's really about building a highly experienced, specialized team that has the experience of not only selling technology to large enterprises, but um, getting them to actually technically integrate as well. Got it. And you were talking about uh, adapting and obviously adoption, you know, like what, what it comes down here, you know, to my mind, you know, like what it comes to mind is you guys are using blockchain, you know, as part of this. And there's a lot of a lot of talk going around blockchain. And I think that there's also a lot of noise. How do you think about uh, filtering through that noise uh, around the blockchain space and then also about adoption? Sure. So, you know, as it relates to blockchain, I agree with you. There's a lot of sort of controversy, largely sort of driven by one use case, which is cryptocurrency. And so regardless as to whether you believe in the need for an extra governmental sort of currency or not, uh, the reality is that distributed ledger technology and blockchain can be used for a number of pretty powerful use cases. Uh, and so blockchain is a component of our tech stack. Frankly, it's not the largest component of our tech stack, but it's a relevant one. Uh, and we don't necessarily sort of shy away from it being a component. Um, but it's just part of what enables our information exchange to operate. Um, you know, I think uh, we focus much more on adoption, frankly, than we do on technology. In many ways, our information exchange, um, you know, utilizes, you know, three different, uh, you know, technologies effectively that are stitched together to deliver the solution. Um, but really, uh, these are just technologies. It's the Intel inside, right? What matters much more is, are you developing use cases that your customers, in this case, financial institutions, can benefit from because you can help them create greater accuracy, you can help them do things more cheaply, and you can do, help them do things you know, with much greater security. And so if you're able to do that, um, you know, you've created use cases that will drive adoption. So we spend a lot of our time thinking about not just pure technology, but what are the problems in the actual real world uh, are we solving with the technology we're developing? Because if we're not solving real problems, no one's going to adopt it, right? And so that's why I think it was helpful that we'd had a lot of experience uh, developing, you know, specialty finance companies and online lending businesses in the past. Very cool. 
And one of the questions that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show is, uh, I mean, in your case, Adam, it's amazing the, the journey uh, and the experience, not only on the investing side, but then also as an operator. If you had that chance to go back in time, Adam, and have a chat with your younger self, you know, where uh, you're able to give that younger self one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? Sure. So, you know, I think historically I've been someone who has been hyper analytical and I've sort of ping ponged decisions in my head endlessly at various points in time. And I think that has held me back at various points. And so I think if I were sort of give myself advice, it would be to say, you know, when you are making a decision, whether it's to start something or it's a decision about whether to do something within a business, um, you are never going to have perfect information. Uh, and that incremental sort of data point, as desirable as it might be, uh, might not actually change the outcome. It might not be available and or the cost of obtaining it might actually cause you to, uh, you know, miss an opportunity. And so, you know, the advice I would always uh, try to give myself is you're always operating with incomplete sets of information and you just have to make decisions acknowledging that and be willing to adapt and frankly not just be willing to adapt but also willing to accept the risk of like failure right and so for those of us who um you know sort of ping pong in your head and have you know fear of failure frankly uh it's pretty important to uh to be able to sort of embrace that and still make decisions to move forward because not moving forward um is a decision in and of itself i love it i love it so adam for the folks that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi Sure. So I'm a very active sort of user of LinkedIn and, and uh, anyone should feel to reach out, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Adam, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.